It is a great joy and privilege to be with you. Alongside with the great privilege that is preaching the gospel, under it, I suppose, but just under it is the opportunity to speak to preachers, to people who love preaching, to those who support preachers, and to preach about preaching. And then you add in the mix the Puritans, it's combustible. When my flight this morning from Charlotte was delayed on the runway at the gate at Phoenix, and I saw the clock ticking down, and I sprinted to my gate, hearing over the loudspeaker, last call, flight to Burbank. And I ran. I felt the spirit of the Puritans (laughs) within me. What would Sibs have done? He probably would have stopped and shared the gospel. But I was running, and so I made it. And I am overjoyed to be here with you, with so many friends and colleagues and mentors here, and to be in this place. And thank you for the opportunity. This message is divided into three distinct parts. First, I want to summarize the Puritan approach to preaching, if such a thing can be summarized in just a few minutes. Second, I want to look at the Westminster Assembly's Directory for Public Worship, which is a often neglected gem, and see what it has to say about preaching. It would take about 15 minutes to read all that it says about preaching, but I just want to highlight several very relevant practical suggestions that the Westminster Divines give us about preaching. And then third, we will finish by looking at the life and the lessons of an 18th century Dutch American who, though not technically a Puritan, I'm squeezing him in as one who preached in the spirit of the Puritans. And Dr. Beakey and I agree that he is Dutch. And if you ain't Dutch you ain't much. You got it. (laughs) So first then, the Puritan approach to preaching. A summary. The Puritan tradition in preaching can be traced back to the end of the 16th and the beginning of the 17th century and is identified with men, some of whose names you've already heard, William Perkins, Richard Sibbs, John Cotton, John Preston, Thomas Goodwin. Of particular importance in that list is William Perkins, 1558 to 1602. You often read these men, and then when you get their dates, it's very sobering. He died at 44. I am 45. It puts eternity in perspective. William Perkins, educated at Cambridge in for almost two decades, the preacher at Great St. Andrews there in Cambridge. His little book, already mentioned, The Art of Prophesying, did so much to instill the Puritan tradition on preaching. So set aside that thorny exegetical question on whether prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14 is the right category to describe what we're doing when we're preaching. Is that always what we're doing? Is it certain moments in preaching? Is it something of a different category than preaching? Let's conveniently set that aside and acknowledge Perkins' influence on the Puritan tradition. Here's how how Perkins summarizes 
his book. Preaching, he writes, involves one, reading the text clearly from the canonical scriptures, two, explaining the meaning of it once it has been read in the light of the scriptures themselves, three, gathering a few profitable points of doctrine from the natural sense of the passage, four, if the preaching is suitably gifted, and isn't it interesting there, he gives if you can handle this, this requires the supreme gifting, applying the doctrines explained to the life and practice of the congregation in straightforward, plain speech. And then this is his final summary sentence, which is both brilliant and beautiful. The heart of the matter, Perkins says, is this. Preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ. That'll preach. Preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ. We can summarize the Puritan approach to preaching by saying they believed preaching was to be expository, doctrinal, orderly, plain, piercing, and focused on Christ. Just a minute's reflection on each of those words. Expository. Nehemiah 8.8, 8, they read from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Whatever else you do in preaching, and there's so much more to say about preaching and there are various homiletical methods and aims, but whatever else you do in preaching, start there. They read the law of God, they read the word, and they gave to people the explanation, the sense of it. Whatever else you do, explain what that passage is about. Be a teacher. Make sure people are learning something. Even if you have a congregation that has been well taught for 50 years, for hundreds of years, make sure they can walk away on Sunday realizing they learned something after your 10, 15, 20 hours of preparation that they did not see in their initial 10 seconds or 10 minutes of reflection. Expository. Doctrinal. In typical Puritan preaching, and this is the kind that came to dominate Anglo-American evangelical preaching for the next two centuries in the British Isles and in North America, the sermon was supposed to, after the exposition, make doctrinal points. And surely we have something to learn from the Puritans here. Is it possible that some of our preaching so intent on being rigorously tied to the text, which we all ought to say yes and amen, but is it possible that we have become afraid of connecting scriptural dots or of lifting our gaze from the trees to see the larger forest and to give to people larger points of doctrine. Just think of the typical loci in systematic theology, and as you prepare and preach God's word, how might you, don't do all of this, but how might you from time to time, from this passage, connect to something about the doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of last things. Make doctrinal 
points so that your people can connect the dots. And in so doing, you're not imposing upon the text. You're connecting because we believe one author through many human authors has inspired this book so that there is an organic cohesion to all parts. Our doctrine of inspiration necessitates that we would draw larger doctrines even from specific texts. Third, orderly. As is well known, if you read any of the literature, especially from Perkins, he was influenced by the latest Ramist logic, R-A-M-I-S-T, certain philosophical method of teaching, a certain logical approach that had been taught at Cambridge that was highly structured, often bifurcated into pairs and pairs and pairs, many, many divisions. And let's be honest, if you've read Puritan sermons, sometimes too many divisions. (laughs) The points are not what people need to remember. The reason that our sermons ought to be orderly is, number one, so you preachers know where you're going. That's important. Sometimes we ought to be honest. This morning's sermon has no points. (laughs) But not only so you know where you're going, but so that people listening have some sense. They're signposts. Perhaps some homileticians would disagree with me, but I am not concerned in the vast majority of my sermons, that anyone remember my two points or three points or four points. Why do I have them then? So that they have some signposts to know where they are. And let's be honest, when they drift away and they get distracted and we say, now point two. Okay. All right. I'm buckling down for point two. (laughs) Point one is gone. Okay, my 10-year-old got something. We'll ask her later. But I am really with you. That's what we're trying to do. That people can stay on track and know where you're going. Orderly. That means even though sermons may vary, some deductive. So that's where you put it all up front. I have three points to prove to you that Christ is fully human and fully divine. There it is. There's your thesis. Here's the points. I have three reasons why you ought to grow in joy for the Lord. There it is. Or an inductive approach, which is often fitting for a narrative where you work around through the text and you tell people at the end where you ended up. Even if you do an inductive approach, still we are wise not to deviate very far from this orderly approach. Is it the only way that people can learn? No. But preaching is a certain kind of communication. There is a time, for sure, for storytelling. If you want to make stories, you've come to the right part of the world. Uh, If you want to just tell stories, then you shouldn't be a preacher. If you want to do a first-person dramatic narrative, I would suggest to you, save it for some other venue than Sunday morning. You are giving to people an orderly presentation that they might understand where you are going and where you have arrived, which leads to this next word, plain. The Puritans in the Westminster Directory were frequent in this admonition. That preaching might be plain. You know, something about the history, especially in Britain, 
of preaching from 16th, 17th, well into the 18th century, and I guess you could say into the 19th and the Victorian era, often the most well-respected, well-regarded preachers were not at all speaking to the people actually in front of them. They were already thinking of what would be published and how they were speaking into larger philosophical, theological debates. They were not plain spoken. People sometimes compare preaching to an art form, and I understand what that means. It's it's not a science that you just can get it all lined up. There's a, a certain feel to it and a romance to it. We all believe that. But we must be clear that preaching is a different kind of discourse. And the reason we believe in words is because words convey maximum shared intelligibility. I get that from 1 Corinthians 14. That's part of Paul's argument. I, I, I want you to understand what I'm saying. So there's going to be a translation. This tongue is unknown. I'm going to speak to you so that you might understand. Words communicate. What we want in preaching is that people get it. So when you see a piece of art, a friend in a previous church who was an artist, and, and he was... He was he was very good from what I, my limited experience. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to go to the show that you're having. Why don't you put sort of a little paragraph explanation of what this is about? Ooh, wow. <laughs> Boom. That was an artistic faux pas. I suppose some people did. He said, no, no, no. That, that defeats the purpose of what I'm trying to do. I want people to stare at this painting. I want to look at it. I want to have an experience with it. I want them to walk away and and then talk to the people with them and say, what do you think that was about? I thought it was like that. Sometimes a good movie leaves you. You leave and you say, wow, what do you think the point was with that flashback? And who do you think, what was the lesson they were trying to teach us? Art can leave you in a state of ambiguity. Preaching is not that kind of art. Art does not make for good preaching. Now, some, there's some art here. Wait a minute, I am not you art, but... Art is not good preaching. This is why we should not rely on our movies to do our preaching. We should not rely on sculptures and paintings to do our preaching. It is a different kind of medium, a different kind of discourse. When it comes to preaching, we want maximum intelligibility. Paul says, an open statement of the truth. So if people leave, and they shake your hand, say, Pastor, whoo. I did not see where you got that from. <laughs> Remember one of the first times I preached, somebody said, wow, Pastor, I did not, I, I'm not sure I saw any of that, but I can tell you are really smart. And, and, and it was, I felt like it was, a, as a young man, it was, it was a temptation and it was a, a, a turning point. Do I want to be the sort of preacher that people watch? I don't know what that was, but that guy's smart. Or how did I not see this? This is so plain. This is an open statement of the truth. Plain, piercing. It's interesting that Perkins says the application should happen, quote, if the preaching is suitably gifted. The suggestion there is that application is in some ways the hardest part of sermon preparation. It's where legalism sets in. 
It's also where the Spirit can work with profound conviction and assurance. I'll say more about this at the very end, but one of the lessons, surely, from the Puritans is that they preached to the conscience. Many of our people and the people out there in the world who might hear us and need to hear the gospel, they have all sorts of head objections, and let's take those seriously. But many times the head objections are a mask over the real heart objections. If I were to say one deficiency among good expository preaching such that we have in the sort of churches here represented, I think it is a deficiency in preaching to the conscience of men and women. Piercing, not just preaching about the gospel to say, here's how the mechanism of the gospel works and can save you, but to turn and to say on Sunday morning, some of you are living a duplicitous life and you know it and you don't want to hear it, but you, but you hear someone besides me speaking to you right now and you know that you have to turn. The Puritans preach like that. And I fear that many of us are so afraid of being accused of preaching with authority that we dare not preach in that way. What was it that they marveled at in Jesus' preaching? His intellect, his stories, his humor, his rapport, his laughter. They marveled because he spoke with authority, not as their scribes piercing and focused on Christ. Not just a conclusion tied up at the end, but the power of Christ, the promise of Christ, and he himself is the hermeneutical principle. And let me hasten to add, lest you misunderstand, when the Puritans speak of focusing on Christ, don't hear that as simply a gloss for justification by faith alone. That's precious. That's to be proclaimed from the mountaintops. But we can have a truncated view of what it means to preach Christ if we think preaching Christ means everyone who comes on Sunday is feeling really beat up and they just need to know that they're okay in Jesus. No, preaching Christ, steal the title of Sinclair's book, the whole Christ means we preach the divine nature, the human nature. We preach the multifaceted work of Christ, his prophet, priest, and king, his work on the cross, atonement for sinners, his intercessory work. Preach Christ. In his wonderful chapter on Puritan preaching in A Quest for Godliness, J.I. Packer says, four axioms underlay all Puritan thought in preaching. Here's what Packer says. Number one, the primacy of the intellect. So the the way to move the heart is through the head. It takes patience, brothers, because that takes time. There is a way to see more immediate results if you bypass the head and you just know the right lights, the right chord progression, the right ambiance, the right measures, and you have a response. That makes in time for weak Christians. You train Christians implicitly to trust you because you're earnest or to trust you because you're humorous or to trust you because you're passionate. You want them to learn to trust the word because you have trained them to think God's thoughts after them. The primacy of the intellect. Two, Packer says, the supreme importance of preaching. 
I trust I don't need to convince you of this, but if preaching is of supreme importance, it will surely be reflected in how you spend your time each week, pastors. It will be reflected in how the worship service is structured because preaching is a priority, the priority. Third, Packer says, the life-giving power of Holy Scripture. I imagine many of your churches, just like mine, you have all sorts of ministries. We have, if you have multiple staff people, you have staff members who specialize in different areas. We have a counseling ministry at our church. We have small groups, Sunday school classes, youth ministries. We have all of these things. I am thankful for them. They exist to reinforce the preaching of the word, never to replace it. Nor should we think that preaching is not counseling ministry. That preaching is not evangelism ministry. That preaching is not discipleship ministry. That preaching is not youth ministry. Remember when Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd? Do you remember what he did? It said he taught them. He had compassion on people and he spoke things. If, if, if we spoke in our church of mercy ministry, almost no one thinks instinctively, ah, they're talking about preaching. Preaching is mercy ministry. Preaching, Jesus had compassion. These people need the word. Finally, Packer says, the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. So we do not judge our ministries by size, and we pray. Here's one thing my congregation often hears me pray before the sermon. God, would you, by the Holy Spirit, now preach a better sermon than the one I'm about to preach? And then, would you send your spirit to preach this sermon to the consciences of men and women all week? I want people to hear a better sermon than I know how to preach. All of you pastors have had this wonderful and humbling experience. Shake your hand. And the nice lady says, Pastor, When you were talking about this, it was like you were just speaking right to me. And you're thinking, I don't remember saying any of that. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit preached the word that she needed to hear. The sovereignty of the Spirit. Second big heading. I want us to look just briefly at the directory for public worship. It's one of those hidden gems we should all know more about and consult more frequently. We know in whatever tradition we're a part of, we've heard of the the Westminster Confession of Faith, but among the documents they produce is also this directory on worship, and there is a long section on preaching. Let me just give to you a few of the lines that I think are particularly relevant. Here's one at the very beginning. The Westminster Divines write, it is presupposed according to the rules for ordination that the minister of Christ is in some good measure gifted for so weighty a service by his skill in the original languages and in such arts and sciences as are handmaids into divinity by his whole knowledge in the whole body of theology, but most of all in the holy scriptures, having his senses and heart exercised in them above the common sort of believers. Remember in my previous denomination, we'd examine men and it was almost impossible for anyone to fail. It was unfailable, which is not a real examination if you can't fail. And I remember many times the 
man seeking ordination would have to stand and he would have to acquit himself and speak and he would, he would fumble around. And on the one hand, there's a great amount of grace. There's a, a nervousness. There's all of these people adjudicating these ordination exams. You want to be very gracious and patient. And yet you also want to see some measure of ability. And I don't remember how many times someone would say later when we're discussing the exams and it was brought up, well, the brother didn't really know how to articulate the Trinity and he wasn't very clear about the doctrine of sin and sovereignty. And someone would say, he's really just speaking in front of other people is not his gift. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) That brother may have a bigger crown in heaven than the, the pastor, but that is sort of a requisite for being a preacher. There are certain gifts Remember Spurgeon lectures on preaching said he was more of a parson killer, not literally, but dissuading men. It is often the case, you get on fire for the Lord at a 24-year-old and you think, what do I do if I'm on fire for Jesus? I go and I become a pastor. Some of those men need to be shepherded into the pastoral ministry and some need to be shown that there are other avenues where God would use them. Also, Westminster Directory, ordinarily the subject of his sermon is to be some text of scripture holding forth some principle or head of religion or suitable to some special occasion emergent. I will forgive them for the word emergent in the directory of of worship. But notice, ordinarily, even the Puritans at the assembly allowed, there are times when special occasions dictate for, heaven for a topical message ordinarily. Get the spirit of the Puritans, but let's understand where they even had some flexibility. Here's a good piece of advice, brothers. Let the introduction to his text be brief and clear. Mm. How many sermons have the introduction swallowed up the rest and then you rush through your points? How about this? I found this very freeing. If the text be long, as in histories or parables, Let him give a brief sum of it or a short paraphrase thereof. When I just preached through Genesis for two years and you get to the Joseph story and you take some big chunks and you do three chapters and I feel that, oh, do I read all three chapters? Not wrong if you do. I take some grace here from the Westminster divines themselves that it's okay with a really long text sometimes to give a summary for the sense of it. This is also good advice. In analyzing and dividing his text, he is to regard more the order of matter than words and neither to burden the memory of the hearers in the beginning with too many numbers of division nor to trouble their minds with obscure terms of art. That means don't have too many points and don't work so hard that they all start with the letter P. That's what I think they're saying. (laughs) Obscure terms of art. Pay attention to the ideas rather than just having to move in a slavish sort of way through each and every word. If any doubt obvious from scripture, reason, or prejudice of the hearers seem to arise, it is very requisite to remove it by reconciling the seeming differences, answering the reasons, discovering and taking away the causes of prejudice and mistake. So there's the Puritan saying, Do apologetics. Think about your congregation 
and the people there, what objections did they have? And not just, well, they read a Bart Ehrman book and now they can't trust the canon. That's infrequent. More common is this psalm says that there's no reason to fear man and I have a thousand reasons why I'm afraid of man. What do I do with that? So they instruct you, be mindful of the objections. I remember in my preaching class in seminary, so I don't know if I got this from Hannah Robinson or where I did, but these things stuck with me. He said, at any point in your sermon, you can do four things. You can explain the text, illustrate, apply, or defend. Explain, illustrate, apply, or defend. I dare say that most of us hunker down hard on explain, and that's most important, but don't forget the others. Illustrate, apply, and defend. Here's what the Westminster Directory goes on to say. So that's one thing, dealing with objections, but lest we think all objections can be removed, here's what the divines say. He is not to rest in general doctrine, although never so much cleared and confirmed, but to bring it home to special use by application to his hearers, which, albeit it prove a work of great difficulty to himself, requires much prudent zeal and meditation, and, listen to this, the natural and corrupt man will find it very unpleasant. I sometimes wonder if there are whole schools of thought and hermeneutical and homiletical approaches which operate in objection to that sentence, that we ought to preach in such a way that the natural and corrupt man could not find anything unpleasant. Of course, we want to make maximum intelligibility. We want to clear up that there are not misunderstandings. But if we are not preaching things that the fallen, sinful human heart finds objectionable, we're not preaching the whole counsel of God. In confutation of false doctrines, he is neither to raise an old heresy from the grave, nor to mention a blasphemous opinion unnecessarily, but if the people be in danger of an error, he is to confute it soundly and endeavor to satisfy their judgments against all objections. Good sound advice. Have you ever been tempted or done this, pastor, because you learned it in seminary, I teach at seminary, love seminary, you feel like your people need to be aware of everything. I'm sure 10, 15 years ago, I preached sermons against the new perspective on Paul, which I'm still against, but I had to take 15 minutes to explain what this new perspective thing was and then uh, introduce all these people they never heard of. And meanwhile, they're saying, I never was tempted to think this was right, Pastor. <laughs> or years ago, I was preaching through Ephesians. And I'm not saying it's wrong if you did this, but, but I, I did do it. I'm just thinking there, okay, I learned about all this in my, my New Testament class. And I know there's a big debate about the Pauline authorship of Ephesians. And I was sort of wrestling with myself. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Well, okay, I'll do it. And I did five or 10 minutes, the first sermon on the, on the series about the Pauline authorship of Ephesians. You know what people, and I'm preaching to a university educated crowd. You know what they're saying? Paul, okay. I'm, to the saints in Ephesus, I'm sold. Now you go to seminary, you know the, the objections and uh, pseudepigrapha and all the rest, but don't bring up, if, if you have to take 
30 minutes to explain it and then knock it down, you maybe didn't need to do that one. Don't resurrect all of your seminary debates as edifying as they were. Here's how the directory closes. This is pure gold. The servant of Christ, whatever his method be, so there's some allowance that not every sermon is the same method or sounds the same. Whatever his method be is to perform his whole ministry. And then the directory gives seven words. And there's a paragraph with each, but I'll just read the words. He is to perform his whole ministry The very first word is shocking, painfully. Not doing the work of the Lord negligently. So painfully, plainly, faithfully, wisely, gravely, with loving affection, and as taught of God and persuaded in his own heart. You'd be hard-pressed to find better advice ever written by a non-inspired author than that. The servant of Christ is to do his ministry painfully, plainly, faithfully, wisely, gravely, with loving affection as taught by God. And then finally, in this third section, let's see what this looks like and draw some lessons from one who I admit is not technically a Puritan, but we can include in the penumbra the spirit of the Puritans. A Dutch reform minister in America named Theodore Jacobus Frelinghuysen. Many of us have barely heard of him, and if we have at all, it's maybe just a sentence somewhere in a church history course. Let me give you a brief background, and, and Dr. Beakey has, has written a wonderful introduction in the, the book of sermons from Frelinghuysen. He was born in 1691 in West Friesland, died in New Jersey in 1747. He received ordination in the Dutch Reformed Church at the age of 26, and he served for two years in his native land. At 28, he was approached by the classes of Amsterdam to see if he'd be willing to take a church in the Raritans Valley. Frelinghuysen accepted, assuming that Raritans was the Raritans in the Netherlands, but the classes meant the Raritan Valley in New Jersey. <laughs> Frelinghuysen was convicted by Psalm 15.4, God honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt. I wasn't even the Raritan I meant, but I promised I would go, and so he did. He took the charge, misunderstanding and all, moved to the new world. From the beginning of his ministry in the Mid-Atlantics to his death, Frelinghuysen was controversial. He preached emotional sermons, which were not the norm, in most parts of Dutch Calvinism in the New World. He prayed free prayers, he practiced church discipline, and he aimed squarely at the conversion of his hearers. He did not assume that everyone in church was converted. His messages were experiential, fruitful, and popular. Now, let's be honest. He was also irascible, overly dogmatic, unbending, and could be petulant. He was a powerful preacher. God used him mightily. He was, if you know anything about him, the sentence that maybe is a hook in your mind is he was considered a forerunner to the revivals that swept through America in the middle decades of the 1700s. George Whitfield wrote about Frelinghuysen in his journals. Here's what Whitfield said. 
Among those who came to hear the word were several ministers whom the Lord had been pleased to honor in making them instruments of bringing many sons to glory. One was a Dutch Calvinistic minister named Frielinghausen, pastor of a congregation about four miles from New Brunswick. He is a worthy old soldier of Jesus Christ and was the beginner of the great work which I trust the Lord is carrying on in these parts. He has been strongly opposed by his carnal brethren, but God always appeared for him in surprising ways and made him more than conqueror through his love. He has long since learned to fear him only who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Frelingheisen's influence was not just on Whitfield. The Dutch preacher was instrumental in the ministry of Gilbert Tennant. He was highly respected by Jonathan Edwards as the one who laid the groundwork for God's blessing. They considered him to be, quote, the beginning of the great work. Let me finish this message by giving you a few lessons from Frelinghuysen's ministry as it relates to preaching. And I think these fall fairly under the umbrella of Puritans and preaching. Here's one lesson. I have five. I'll move through them quickly. Number one, dead orthodoxy is deadly. We have to acknowledge this. I'm preaching through the seven churches in Revelation. Many of you have done the same. You know the first church, Ephesus, sound in doctrine. They hate what Jesus hates. They don't fall for the Nicolaitans. They have great works and faithfulness, but they've lost their first love. We are a group of people who rightly want to champion the doctrines of the faith. We also should bemoan any occasions where right doctrine becomes dead doctrine. I suppose the doctrine is not dead, but perhaps the men preaching it are. Freelinghausen encountered reformed churches, Dutch Calvinist churches, filled with self-righteous and empty formalism. They had the appearance of godliness, but knew not its power. He emphasized conversion. Let us not be so afraid of emotionalism or subjectivism that we mistake a cold, lifeless orthodoxy for faithfulness. Tradition, as it has been said many times, is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Frelinghuysen preached the three forms of unity. That's what came from the continent, Heidelberg Catechism, Belgian Confession, Canons of Dort, and in the Dutch tradition, you preach on Sunday evening from the Heidelberg Catechism. He gladly preached from the Catechism. He was a confessional Calvinist, but he was not a slave to traditionalism. In objecting to Frelinghuysen's insistence on using free prayers, that means they weren't read from a book, and collaborating with other evangelicals beyond the Dutch Reformed Church, Classis Amsterdam harumphed, we must be careful to do things in a Dutch way in our churches. That was the first time the, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, bumper sticker was made. (laughs) The Dutch leaders did not like his deviation from the liturgy. They did not appreciate his enthusiasm, the subjective nature of his preaching. They didn't like that he used English vernacular. They wanted a Dutch pastor who stuck with Dutch ways. And that's what many of the Dutch parishioners wanted. I have no problem calling myself a conservative 
in this very important biblical sense that we are called to conserve something. We are given the apostolic deposit of faith, the faith once delivered for the saints, and we're to pass it on to others and not mess with it. We conserve something. But conservative does not mean every old way is automatically the best way. Let us not be confused. Frelinghuysen did not reject his Dutch Calvinism, but he wanted to do more than carry on a tradition. So I sometimes put the, the, the flag. That, so I'm at a Presbyterian church. I know we've got a lot of Baptists and other folks here. Uh, we're very Presbyterian. It's Christ covenant. We slap covenant on everything. The nursery is for covenant children. <laughs> Our baptismal font has this much water. It's triggering to all of you. I know. We have our school, is the PCA school, Covenant Seminary, Covenant College. We have Covenant groups. It's just everything Covenant. So I love being a Presbyterian. And yet, if we wave the banner of Presbyterian or Baptist or conservative, you're not waving the right banner. You wave the banner of Christ and the gospel, and the cross. And you know what? Then, in love with Jesus and in love with the Bible, you can drill them deep into all that, and you can tell them about all your heroes. But you wave the banner of Christ. And and we're we're not imbibing the spirit of the Puritans. None of the Puritans would want us to, in our Sunday after Sunday, it's wonderful that we do this, but Sunday after Sunday, to wave Puritans, we wave Christ. That's what they did. That's what we learned from them. That's why we speak about them. Number two, God blesses preaching that is scriptural, personal, and evangelical. You can read Frelinghuysen's sermons. As I said, Dr. Beeky has an edition of them. They still pop. They're, They're still very readable almost 300 years later. He knew his Bible and he preached it plainly. And besides being scriptural, his sermons were evangelical in the best sense of the word. Nearly every sermon at some point dealt with the sinfulness of man, the holiness of God, the reality of heaven and hell, the necessity of receiving the gospel and the new birth. More than 300 were said to be converted under his ministry. His sermons could be intensely personal. And I don't mean that he got, quote, authentic. I mean, he did something better. He spoke directly to his hearers. He wasn't afraid to plead. Wasn't that John Murray's definition of preaching? Personal, passionate, pleading. Do you plead with your people? Here's what Frelinghuysen said in one sermon. Seek the Lord, I pray you, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. For you cannot be assured of your life for a moment. Avail yourself then of the present moment. The Lord may be found right now, but you do not know how long you will last. Right now, he invites you to come so that he may offer you his favor and grace. He stands with open arms. Do not let this season of grace pass you by. Do you preach like that? Do I preach like that? Not merely explaining how the mechanism of salvation works, but pleading with people, now come to Christ. Third, fear God, not people. Many of his contemporaries deeply despised Frelinghuysen. He wrote, I am the man everyone talks about. 
Beloved by many, hated by many more. Despite the onslaught of criticism and opposition, he pressed on. This was his motto, which he took for himself in Latin. I'm not a proponent of tattoos, so I'm not saying you do this, but with removable ink, perhaps. <laughs> Laudum non quaro, culpum non temeo. What does it mean? I seek not praise, I fear not blame. <laughs> I seek not praise, I fear not blame. That's quite a slogan. Fear God, not people. Fourth, I said I have just five. Number four, passion and courage are no excuse for a harsh spirit. Like all earthly heroes, Frelingheisen had his weaknesses. In fact, he probably had more than most. He was a hothead. He was seldom ironic. He was harsh toward his opponents, judgmental at times towards his congregation. His, his right insistence upon true conversion sometimes meant that he kept away from the table those who were not living in immorality and those who professed the doctrines of the faith, but they couldn't live up to his subjective standards of regeneration. He could be tactless in barring people from the supper. He sometimes made sweeping denunciations against his enemies and those he considered to be insufficiently pious. We might say in our lingo that he did not have a high EQ. He suffered at times from self-inflicted wounds. During the 15 years of what's called the Klockta affair, not a relational affair, but just this episode, he faced vehement opposition from those he had kept from the table. Later in life, he became more aware of this flaw and realized that some of the persecution was owing to his own bullheadedness. And he came to see that he was sorry he had labeled so many of his colleagues unconverted. He came around to see that the courage sometimes gave way to a harsh, vindictive spirit. And then fifth, doctrinal fidelity and gospel fervor belong together. Perhaps there's no better summation of what the Puritans were trying to do than doctrinal fidelity and gospel fervor. Frelinghuysen did not accept, neither did the Puritans, that head and heart pull in opposite directions. He was dismayed that by 1737, after more than a century, the Dutch Reformed Church had only 19 ministers. You got 100 years, they got 19 ministers. Why? Because they made them all go back to the classes of Amsterdam and get examined there before they could come back to America. You appreciate their precision. They were really clear about getting things right, but they were short-sighted. His homiletical aim was, first of all, for sinners to see their condition apart from Christ. His preaching was always marked by a direct style and a kind of unapologetic exhortation, turn from sin, run to Jesus. That's why I said at the, at the first part, we need more preaching to the conscience, speaking to men and women, to understand not only do they have objections and they have a worldview and they need to be brought to understand and they need all the arguments that we, that we have in our intellectual arsenal, but you also realize they're made in the image of God. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. 
And who knows but that this would be the day of salvation and they would hear Christ. That moment in the sermon, Lloyd-Jones said they stopped taking notes because, okay, you're learning something. All right, where, where, where is Mesopotamia? I'll look it up back in the map and I'm getting that. What was that uh, word? Dikaio, oh, what does that mean? You get to the end of the sermon and there's a sense that comes over the people, not just a man, it's the sheep here, the voice of the shepherd speaking to them. Preach, not as Christ, but as Christ speaking through you. Let me close with this paragraph from the conclusion of a sermon entitled, this is a title, A Mirror That Does Not Flatter. He says, You have lived 20, 30, 40, 50 years, some longer, and walked in the way that seemed right in your eyes. But now you are nearer to eternity, and God is warning you not to proceed any farther in your own ways. Do not turn from all these warnings and remain convinced that your way is right. Do not deceive your poor souls any longer. Give ear to the counsel of God. Listen to what Jeremiah says Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. May God awaken in his church and in our pulpits a fresh experience and a new conviction under the powerful preaching of his word. New power, conversion, conviction, to preach that one Christ by the power of Christ for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you give in particular to the men who have the sacred charge to bring the living word of God Sunday after Sunday. Oh Lord, we, we, we grow weary. It can feel like a grind. We wonder many Sundays if it's doing anything, but help us, Lord. We believe, help thou our unbelief. Your word does not return empty. It, it, it does not fail to accomplish all of its purposes. And so give us fresh energy to work hard, to think hard, to labor hard, to pray hard, fresh conviction to preach, not ourselves, but ourselves as your servants, our people's servants for Jesus' sake with authority that comes only under the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.